RTHK News. It's 11 o'clock, I'm Todd Harding. Tonight's headlines. Hong Kong sees dozens more COVID infections with a cluster emerging at a hospital. Beijing says the SAR's opposition camp has illegally manipulated the upcoming LegCo polls and Britain is to purge Huawei from its 5G network. Hong Kong is now experiencing its first cluster of COVID-19 cases in a hospital with three patients at Queen Elizabeth infected. Wendy Wong reports. The first patient in the cluster, a 92-year-old woman, was confirmed to have coronavirus on Monday. Since then, doctors have discovered a 77-year-old woman who'd been staying in the same ward is infected, and tests show a 64-year-old cancer patient has also come down with the virus. Speaking after visiting the ward in question, microbiologist Professor Yun Kwok Yong from the University of Hong Kong said being as the SAR's community outbreak is serious, it's inevitable that hospitals will be meeting people who have the virus but aren't showing symptoms. He added that the immune response of elderly people is low, so they won't develop a fever very quickly. Professor Yun said one of the infected women may have touched the railings of other patients' bed as she walked around and she could have contaminated the environment. Officials said tests have been carried out on other patients and staff on the ward, but none have come back positive so far. Earlier in the day, officials announced there have been 14 new locally acquired coronavirus infections in Hong Kong and eight linked to overseas travel. In many of the cases, the source of infection is unknown. Dr. Chuan Shukwan from the Center for Health Protection said what's worrying is that many of the new patients are elderly. The elderly couples, the whole family, they do not have many um, activities except walk around in some and have Chinese tea in some restaurants. This is quite usual habit for local people. So if that is the risk factor, then it is very worrying because many of us may get infected unknowingly. A man who recently underwent a heart procedure at Princess Margaret Hospital is among those infected. 14 patients who were on the same ward as him are now being quarantined, as well as a nurse who'd been on duty there. Beijing has again condemned the opposition camp for its election primaries over the weekend. Timmy Sung reports. A spokesman for the Hong Kong and Macau Affairs Office says the pro-democracy camp's primaries were an illegal manipulation of the upcoming electoral elections. He says the exercise, which attracted hundreds of thousands of voters, posed a blatant challenge to the basic law and the newly enacted national security law. The primaries interfered with and damaged Hong Kong's democratic election system, eroded the government's power to hold an election, and violated the principle of fairness, the spokesman says. The office asked that law professor Benny Tai is an agent of foreign forces and one of those hurting Hong Kong. Beijing's liaison office earlier accused Professor Tai of trying to seize power in Hong Kong and launch a color revolution. Is there any attempt by opposition lawmakers to seek to control the legislature to oppose and paralyze the government would amount to subversion? Both set of Beijing officials are backing Chief Executive Carrie Lam in launching an investigation into the primary polls. Meanwhile, pro-Beijing lawmaker Priscilla Leung says while there's nothing wrong with primaries in general, the opposition camp's efforts were simply too much. Any political party may conduct primary election. But conducting primary election in this format, in this scale, and in the way that they are conducting it, giving a picture that they are doing something under authorization of government, people may even think the government is doing it, this is not allowed. From day one, they are doing it to achieve the purpose of 35 plus in order to 
paralyze Hong Kong. They say they will object every bill, no matter what it is. The Hong Kong Basic Law does not allow that. The lawmaker says the government has to seriously look into whether any laws were broken. Benny Tai says Beijing's allegations against him are nonsense. He notes that the power to veto the government's budget is fully authorised under the basic law. The British government has decided it will stop using equipment from the Chinese tech giant Huawei for its 5G networks. The minister responsible for media regulation, Oliver Dowden, told Parliament the purchase of new 5G equipment from Huawei will be banned from next year. The best way to secure our networks is for operators to stop using new affected Huawei equipment to build the UK's future 5G networks. So to be clear, from the end of this year, telecoms operators must not buy any 5G equipment from Huawei. And once the telecom security bill is passed, it will be illegal for them to do so. You're listening to RTHK Times exactly five minutes past 11. Back locally, a restaurant association has described the government's move to ban dining in in the evenings as stupid, saying the new pandemic restriction could lead to many places going out of business. Priscilla Ng reports. Officials say the 6 p.m. to 5 a.m. ban on customers eating inside restaurants is designed to encourage people to have their meals at home instead. But the convener of the Small and Medium Restaurant Federation, Gordon Lamb, says he can't see the logic in the move and it could give people the wrong impression that they can only catch coronavirus after dark. He says restaurants are now scrambling to source takeaway boxes and the entire catering industry is competing for supplies. Some of the restaurant is the food is difficult to take away and we're afraid the quality of the food if they take away the hygiene problem and also the takeaway stuff such as the boss the lunch boss is now I think quite difficult to buy because all the restaurant is going to find the, the boss other restaurant owners at a media briefing with Mr. Lamb accused the government of failing to understand their difficulties, saying they are paying for the administration's mistakes in its virus containment strategy. The president of the Federation of Restaurants, Simon Wong, echoed the concerns, saying the new dining-in restriction could seriously affect half of some 16,000 restaurants, bringing a plunge in sales of up to 40 percent this month. The health secretary has suggested that customers could be barred from restaurants during the day as well if the virus situation worsens. Unsurprisingly, Mr. Wong isn't impressed with the idea. We do understand that you know a lot of confirmed cases do come from uh, restaurants or related uh, business. Uh, but then if people cannot get into the restaurant to eat, even in daytime, it would cause more damage uh, to the business than we might have to do a lockdown in, in the industry. Meanwhile, Civic Party lawmaker Jeremy Tam has called on the government to introduce a third round of relief measures for restaurants as soon as possible. Financial Secretary Paul Chan has dismissed claims that the national security law will drive away foreign investors, saying there's actually been a recent influx of foreign capital. He was speaking on an online forum where prominent Beijing loyalists continued to trumpet the benefits of the new law. Maggie Ho reports. At an online forum on One Country, Two Systems organized by the Bohemia magazine, Paul Chan said Hong Kong dollar had remained strong since April. He noted that the Monetary Authority has had to defend a currency peg a number of times, 
by selling the local currency and buying the greenback, bringing in more than 100 billion U.S. dollars as a result. He also pointed to recent stock market gains as more evidence that the law has brought stability to Hong Kong's investment environment. Tam Yu-chung, Hong Kong's only deputy to the National People's Congress Standing Committee, said the enactment of the national security law was as if Hong Kong had returned to the mainland for the second time since 1997 because it brought back the original intention of one country, two systems. But he said there is a need to strengthen the weak sense of national identity among young people and beef up education on national security. Basic Law Committee Vice Chairwoman Maria Tam again dismissed claims that the law will damage one country, two systems, while former NPC SC Deputy Rita Fan said it's the violence and street protests that have driven away investments. She also accused foreign countries like Britain and Canada of trying to siphon away money and talents from the SAR by offering to relax immigration requirements for Hong Kongers under what she said was the pretext of offering assistance. Mainland legal scholar Wang Jianmin, formerly the legal chief of the liaison office, said the national security law is a perfect solution that could ensure national security while maintaining one country, two systems. He described the new law as a mild one that protects people's rights and freedoms and does not have any impact on the city's high degree of autonomy. The University of Hong Kong Student Union has begun reposting messages on pro-democracy message boards that were stripped clean by an unknown group of people on Saturday. Students had been putting up protest messages and information on the four so-called Lenin walls since the anti-extradition bill movement began last year. The union's president, EDJ, told Jimmy Choi they won't censor any messages that students post on the walls, even though the national security law is now in force. I think the Lenin Wall is very important for uh, Hong Kong youth students and also Hong Kongers, I think. Just because the Lenin Wall actually is significant for the freedom of expression. It, it represents the freedom of expression that we, sh- uh, we enjoy in HKU campus. So if the Lenin Wall no longer exists in HKU, HKU students can no longer have a place to, play, uh, to express their opinions. So that's the reason why we organized the activity today. Can you briefly tell us what happened a few days ago when this uh, landing wall was being raised? I heard from those witnesses and some of the security that there were like eight, eight unknown persons wearing white shirts. And then they are coming here in a very quick speed. And then they are, they, they are wearing gloves and they are uh, bringing detergents as well as ro- uh, rubbish bags. So, and then they, they sabotaged the uh, London wall in like two minutes. And then after that, they left. Have you reported an incident to the school? And what's their response so far? We, we issued actually two complaint letters to the security contractor, CBRE, and also the HKU security. But they haven't re- replied us yet. Uh, we will follow up with this uh, incident as soon as possible. A mainland scholar who's been highly critical of President Xi Jinping has told RTHK he's been removed from his teaching position at Beijing's prestigious Tsinghua University. He's also been stripped of other public offices he held. Maggie Ho has more. Xu Zhengrong was taken away from his Beijing home last Monday and detained for six days over allegations that he had solicited prostitutes in Sichuan. 
In an interview with RTHK, Mr. Xu says he was punished by the university for what it called corrupt morals. He says he won't appeal against the decision and will accept the punishment he's been given. The 58-year-old scholar says he has yet to make any plans for the future. In 2019, Mr. Xi was suspended from teaching and researching after he openly criticized President Xi for scrapping the limit on presidential terms. Since the coronavirus outbreak, the scholar has also called for reforms, saying the pandemic is a result of authoritarianism and censorship. Mainland political commentator Wu Chang says Mr. Xi has been a thorny problem for the authorities and he suspects the police framed him to give the university an excuse to sack him. The commentator says this will also have a chilling effect on other academics and reinforce the authorities' message that those who eat the Communist Party's rise shouldn't do anything to smash the party's pot. China and the United States are locked in a fresh war of words, this time over the South China Sea. Vicky Wong tells us more. U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo has stepped up the rhetoric against Beijing, saying its pursuit of resources in the South China Sea is illegal. He's also accused China of bullying other countries involved in disputes in the region to further its own territorial claims. And after years of saying it wouldn't take sides, the Trump administration is now backing Southeast Asian nations, endorsing the 2016 findings of an international panel in favor of the Philippines in one dispute. Beijing has promptly hit back. The Chinese embassy in Washington says Mr. Pompeo's remarks distort the facts and disregard the efforts of China and others to bring peace and stability to the South China Sea. The embassy says while the U.S. is not directly involved in the disputes, it keeps interfering and stirring up tension. Beijing says it will impose sanctions on the U.S. defense firm Lockheed Martin for involvement in the latest U.S. arms sale to Taiwan. The company is the main contractor for a possible $620 million U.S. dollar upgrade for the island's Patriot missile defense system. The sanctions were announced by the foreign ministry spokesman Zhao Lijian. China firmly opposes U.S. arms sales to Taiwan. We urge the U.S. to earnestly abide by the One China Principle and our three joint communiques, stop selling arms to Taiwan and cut its military ties with it, so that it won't do further damage to bilateral relations between China and the U.S. and the peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait. Beijing has announced similar sanctions before on U.S. companies for Taiwan arms sales, though it's unclear what form they have taken. A reminder of our top stories tonight. Hong Kong sees dozen more COVID infections with a cluster emerging at Queen Elizabeth Hospital. Beijing says the SAR's opposition camp has illegally manipulated the upcoming LegCo polls. Benny Tai dismisses Beijing's claims that he has attempted to subvert state power. And Britain decides to purge Huawei from its 5G network by 2027. The news from RTHK. RTHK Radio 3. It's time now to look at stories covered in this evening's Newswrap programme. Many NGOs that don't receive government subsidies say they've seen a drastic drop in income amid the COVID-19 outbreak. The Council of Social Service successfully surveyed almost 110 groups from March to April and over half of them said they're expecting their income to drop by 40 to 80 percent this year. The Council's Chief Executive Choi Hoi Wai told Jim Gould that many will be forced to cut services if the pandemic drags on much longer. We are talking about two groups of NGOs. For those who, which receive 
receive regular subvention from the government. The financial situation is much better as the subvention is maintained. However, for many non-subvented NGOs, they really face different kinds of financial problems, um, mainly because um, many planned fund fundraising activities could not be conducted as planned, mm -hmm. and uh, some regular donors have stopped uh, donation because they also face uh, maybe unemployment or other financial difficulties. And also some um, fee charging programs could not be delivered. And this also um, contribute to the reduction of income. And when we, we did the survey in March and April, and among the 109 NGOs respond, I think the medium uh, loss of income during the, the six months uh, before the survey period uh, was about uh, $500,000. Mm -hmm. um, that means if we talk about all the uh, 100 um, NGOs, uh, that's talking about um, maybe up to $50 million and mm -hmm. so on. That's a lot of money for the NGO sector. Um, so what sort of services are at risk? Well, um, we, we're talking about um, different kinds of services. I would say that many NGOs, they will try to maintain their service, even to use their own reserve, and so, as to, so as to keep the staff and deliver the service to users. But some services may be um, cancelled because um, they just could not deliver the service to, say, for example, schools or hospitals. And also some service users, they, um, because of the pandemic, especially elderly people, they might not want to go to service centers to participate in those programs. So that um, different kinds of service users might, uh, might not be able to receive these services uh, due to different reasons. So have any of these non-subvented NGOs received any help from the government? Well, um, these NGOs, if they have um, staff, um, they should be able to benefit from the employment support scheme of the government. Oh, yeah. um, that would help a bit, but now if the pandemic uh, situation continues for a long period of time, then uh, the NGOs would still face a lot of problems. In the uh, current climate, uh, how are the NGOs adapting uh, to the social distancing situation as they, they may have difficulty actually meeting their clients? Yes, uh, well, we try many different ways to, in order to deliver our service. For example, some NGOs try to um, develop some online programs so that the service users, they can receive counseling, or um, maybe even some rehabilitation training through internet. But for some other service users, say elderly people, um, they might not be able to use this kind of high technology. Then uh, our service work, our workers will maybe give them a call, or sometimes they will also arrange uh, some one-to-one sessions to uh, meet the service users and provide some support to them. And of course, we think that we can, um, or we should try to, um, you know, uh, uh, source more um, hardware, uh, such as uh, 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 mobile phone or tablet, and, and also train.
find the uh, elderly people so that they might be able to use this kind of technology to receive service in the uh, in the long run, especially if we expect that the pandemic may last for uh, some more months. Sweeping restrictions have been reintroduced in California as the state battles to contain a resurgence of coronavirus. But on the east coast of the U.S., New York City, which in April had one of the highest COVID-19 death rates in the world, has recorded no new fatalities from the disease for the first time in four months. California, however, has seen a 20% rise in infections in the last two weeks, having lifted a statewide lockdown in May. The BBC's Peter Bowes explains. Well, I think initially there's going to be a lot of disappointment that uh, after all of the work over the last few weeks and months in terms of uh, Californians depriving themselves of being able to go to the gym or to a restaurant or to a bar. But this is a state that started early. The close down started uh, initially in the Bay Area, the San Francisco area of California, and very quickly other parts of the state followed suit. And there was a sense for quite a long time that California was was going to miss the most intense impact of this virus, uh, the kind of impact that we saw in New York. The BBC's Claire MacDonald asked Dr Robert Wachter, Chair of the Department of Medicine, University of California, San Francisco, how California managed to keep the number so low for so long, only to see this sudden surge now. We had good governance. The governor, the mayors, the public health officials did the right thing. We were the first state to shut down. Our corporate leaders, particularly the tech sector, Google and and, uh, Facebook and Twitter, told people to stay home weeks before uh, any of the cities and states shut down. And the people followed the rules. And uh, it was really remarkable. We we had about four or five thousand deaths, where uh, which is terrible, obviously. But New York, which is a smaller state, had had about 30,000, and if we'd had the same per capita death rate as New York in the first three months, that would have been almost 60,000 additional deaths. And yet one month later, hospitalizations have doubled. So lockdown was eased. Can we put it all down to that? Well, sort of. You know, it it was appropriate to begin easing the restrictions. We were doing so well, and uh, things seemed under control. And so the restrictions were eased, but I think people took that as the, as the starting gun for changing the behavior too much. And I think too many people got a little bit complacent. And as you know, in the United States, the, the messaging on things like mass has been quite muddied, in part because the federal government has been very uh, unclear, if sometimes unhelpful. And so uh, it was not inappropriate for us to begin opening up, but we had to do it the right way. So you see this, this, this easing of lockdown, when people heard we're starting to open, they interpreted that as life can go back to the way it was before. Is that what you think? Yes. Yeah, I think that's mostly right. I think they, you know, it's hard to keep up your vigilance, as everyone around the world knows. And, and people were quite vigilant here for about three or four months. And they saw the tragedies in New York and in Italy and in China and other places. But after three or four months, I think people began to get the feeling that, okay, that's, those are problems that happened there. We have dodged the bullet here. We're doing great. And it's time, it's summertime. It's time for us to go back to normal. Not everybody thought that. And it's actually quite patchy in the state. Certain areas, including where I live in San Francisco, are still, still doing relatively well. But there were 
too many people in the states, more young people uh, than older people, who I think are still scared. But younger people said it's time to go back to normal, and it's clearly not. WWF Hong Kong has launched a new online tool to help people work out how much good they do each time they refuse to eat a portion of shark fin soup. The conservation group says the Sharkulator will tell people how many sharks could be saved if people start shunning the traditional Chinese dish. Dr Andy Cornish of the WWF's Global Shark and Ray program told Priscilla Ng why they decided to develop the Sharkulator. WWF first started working on encouraging people not to consume shark fin uh, back about 10 years ago. Uh, and from the very early days, people were asking, well, you know, if we don't consume shark fin, how many sharks... You know, will we actually save? And we've never been, never previously been able to to answer that question. So, what we did, we've done is devised a methodology, um, which actually allows people through it's a it's a sort of six step process. But it, at the end of the day, there's a simple calculator, and you can type in how many bowls of shark fin soup, and it will tell you how many sharks that equates to. So, if people are, are planning events, whether it's corporate spring uh, dinners, um, or just sort of personally interested in how many uh, sharks they may have saved by uh, declining shark fin soup over a period of time. Um, it's there to play around with. So I'm curious myself, for example, if I give up one bowl of shark fin, um, how, how much of a shark have I saved? <laughs> yeah, so the, the easiest way to uh, do it is give you the figure for 100. Hmm. So 100 bowls of shark fin soup is equivalent to about 12 sharks. For a wedding banquet, for example, that would be quite a few sharks saved. Absolutely. Well, you know, if, yeah, I mean, you know, having a, a hundred guests would, uh, would certainly not be uncommon. Could be more than that. Um, yeah. And then it's, you know, you'd actually have a whole school of 12 sharks, um, if you'd not consumed a hundred bowls of shark fin soup. So it, it's starting to make it tangible and more, more real for people. And so what, how do you think, um, the Hong Kong society is doing in terms of saying no to shark fin? Good question. So I think, you know, in some ways things are promising and most people uh, will tell us that shark fin consumption is on the way down. It's increasingly common for, for weddings, which is still the number one occasion when shark fin is consumed, to, you know, either for it to be completely shark fin free or to have some tables that are not consuming shark fin. Uh, so we're heading in the right direction, but the latest survey findings um, of consumers found that in the last year, seven out of 10 people had consumed shark fin. So it's still way too high. That's a lot higher than Singapore. That's a lot higher than Taiwan, uh, a lot higher than main, mainland China per capita. What more do you think needs to be done to tackle the situation? Well, I mean, I th firstly, I think uh, we need to realize that there's actually a shark crisis going on at the moment. There are now uh, sort of 500, just about 500 species of sharks, and 42 of them are now critically endangered, which is one step away from the extinction. It's almost entirely due to overfishing. So uh, I think realizing, realizing that, uh, that, you know, Hong Kong is playing a direct role in that uh, through shark fin consumption, um, we, you know, it, I guess it's a start point. It's awareness raising. This is not a sort of an intangible issue. This is a real crisis right here, right now. Uh, and we certainly need uh, the Chinese banqueting sector um, to stop selling, selling shark fin. Uh, we've seen from the, certainly the, the major you know, international hotel chains, uh, most of them stopped serving it quite a while ago. Um, it's really the, the Chinese banqueting establishments that are really the last bastions of uh, shark fin consumption in Hong Kong. Now, as many countries begin to ease their lockdowns, how do we make sense of it? In the UK, an unexpected catalogue of experiences and emotions has been compiled, and it all started with one woman's request for people to send her their feelings in the form of short poems or haikus. 
Over the weeks, thousands were sent to her. The BBC's David Silito has been sifting through what's now become a haiku history of the time of coronavirus. Let's start with a poem. A short poem. I try some new things, like taking my pyjamas for a walk outside. And here's another. Funeral workers, though frantic, receive no claps. When I first started, I just asked on my Facebook how people were, and I just wanted to find out how people were doing. The way we hug now, a back-to-back bum-wiggle. Friends find ways to love. I'm Liv Talk, and I'm a spoken word artist. I'm based in Froomen, Somerset. We argued about how to decontaminate the unwrapped peppers. I didn't want people to write loads and loads and loads, so I asked people to write in a form of a haiku and to keep things kind of short. The fire we saw lit looked like it was a candle. Turns out, it's a fuse. What you're listening to is distilled lockdown. 17 syllables at a time, or thereabouts. How many haiku? I think I've read about 8,000. 8,000? About 8,000. I haven't got fit, but I've got kinder. Surely that's what matters most. I expected some people to have a go and some people to enjoy it. I didn't expect quite so many people to have a go. Back to work today, but I have a big problem. All my clothes have shrunk. And for Live Talk, this little poetic challenge has become something unexpected. An emotional snapshot of lockdown Britain. Yeah, and it's sadness and grief and love and hope and all of the, you know, the knotty bits in between. Yeah, it's the stuff of life. And what are your feelings at the end of it? Is there anything you take away from this? I really found interesting was when you read them all together, they started to tell a story that individually I wasn't able to tell or any of my writer friends weren't able to tell. I am so lonely. The postman smiled this morning. It felt like new love. Tourists poo behind the bins in the beach car park. Freedom returning. Porridge for the twelfth damn day in a row. I am now made of porridge. What floats on the breeze? Dandelion clocks? Death and the grief of strangers. And nothing makes sense, but in telling the story, we learn who we are. Those stories were part of the Newswrap programme, which was broadcast on RTHK earlier this evening. Hi, I'm Lazy Lion. To fight this pandemic, take preventive measures when commuting. Avoid rush hours and busy times and take advantage of flexible working hours. Wear a mask when taking a ride. If possible, open the windows to ventilate the vehicle. Clean your hands with liquid soap and water or alcohol-based hand rub after using public transport or touching public facilities. Social distancing can help prevent the spread of COVID-19. Tips for you and me to prevent COVID-19. Live across Hong Kong. This is Radio 3. January to December. We'll have moments to remember. Yes, this is it. Ray Cudero is back.
Nostalgia is back. Liberace is also back. That was Liberace at the piano and with the opening number, which was Over the Rainbow. touch your hand and my arms grow strong like a pair of birds that burst with song my eyes look down at your lovely face 